Hey everybody, before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You could also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. Welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show, we are talking about Rob Zombie's Three from Hell, which recently had a limited Fathom Events release and did so well that it's back out tonight for one night only before it hits uh, VOD and streaming. So this is a little bit of a different kind of an episode because, you know, we, we're usually talking about movies that are in, you know, wide release or at least limited release, you know, normal theatrical release, not something like this that just gets these weird one-offs. But I think as the industry continues to change, we're going to end up covering more movies like this, more of these weird one-off release kind of things. I know, of course, we've got Jay and Silent Bob later this month, which we'll probably do an episode on. Uh, but we got a fun conversation for you today uh, with two returning co-hosts. Again, another one of these three-person episodes. These are a lot of fun to do. They're a lot more work to uh, actually organize and make happen, but uh, they can be a lot of fun when we make them happen. We've got Joe Black and Adam Wells joining me today, uh, who both are very well-versed in the world of horror and Rob Zombie and had quite a lot to say about this movie and its influences. So it's a really great conversation. Uh, I want to remind you all to make sure you are subscribed to Piecing It Together on your podcast app of choice. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And of course, join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we always have lots of great conversations about all these movies we talk about on the show. So, let's get into it, this conversation about Three from Hell. All right, so Three from Hell, this is uh, take two. We had a little bit of uh, technical difficulty getting this one recorded the week that it, uh, it had the Fathom Events screening, but... You know, it all works out because it's actually uh, back in theaters for a day today that we're putting this up, um, and uh, we're, we're going to talk about it. With me, we've got two great returning co-hosts. We've got Adam Wells and Joe Black. How's it going, guys? hey What's going on, people? Hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. How are you, David? Oh, I'm good. Just... Uh, Fitting in lots of podcasts. I mean, we this has been the craziest month. There's so many movies out and so much coming out, and uh, it's a lot to talk about. But I'm I'm loving it. I'm still waiting for your Zeroville podcast. That's the one I want to hear. <laughs> you know what? I I I make such a big stink about watching movies in theaters. You know, and it actually did open here for one week at one theater, and I didn't make it there. Oh man. Well, don't How feel was too it? bad. It did the same thing here in L.A. It was only here for one weekend in L.A. at one theater. 
And yeah. um, it was terrific. Okay. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, you got James Franco making out with Liz Taylor's handprints at the Chinese theater in the opening credits. You know you're in for a good time. Oh, boy. Well, maybe maybe I'll finally get around to it. Uh, three from hell, you guys. I know that the both of you are pretty big fans of Rob Zombie and his whole like filmography, right? That is an understatement, yes. He's my favorite contemporary filmmaker. I've definitely watched all of his movies multiple times. I own several of them. Uh, some of them I like more than others. All right. Yeah. I, I think that when he's, uh, when he's sure of what he's doing and when he's in full control, that's when you get the best results. So I'm actually not, uh, the two films of his I'm not nuts over are Devil's Rejects and Halloween. And I think it's because Devil's Rejects is much as people like it. That's one of his few films where you can tell he didn't quite know what he was doing, that he was like figuring it out as he goes along. And then with Halloween, you can see the in, the interference of others. But in everything else that he's done, even House of a Thousand Corpses, his vision is so sure, and he's and he's working on such interesting thematic level. I just I love him. I'm so grateful for for him being in the mainstream. I think that's an interesting thing that we should start on uh, before we jump into some puzzle pieces here. Uh, the Devil's Rejects being kind of you know it's part two of this trilogy and. You're saying that that is, you know, one of the weaker entries that he's like finding his footing kind of there in that that middle place. Like, where do you think do you think he always from House of a Thousand Corpses was like moving towards this kind of a story? No, I don't think so. I think that House of a Thousand Corpses, I mean, he had been directing music videos for over a decade at that point. And so mm. what did he do? He made a film that functioned as a long music video. Totally. You know, but in a good way. I think that it's a very sure of itself movie. There's nothing in that movie by accident. And um, I, I just think it's brilliantly constructed. And he did that as his way to break into movies. But then when it came time for round two, he had to make a real movie. And while, you know, it, overall the movie is successful, Devil's Rejects, I still think it's a good movie. It's just not quite to par with some of his other work. I think that it, you can actually see him like, figuring out what he likes to do visually, figuring out how he likes to string a scene together, how far is too far with the performance, how dialed back, you know, it's, it's very experimental. Um, and then from then on the rest of his career, his films are so sure of themselves and so, and more thematically driven than story driven or, or, um, or even plot driven, you know, mm. uh, and that's why I think that horror fans maybe aren't so hot on him because I feel like he actually makes films that are horrific. Um, he makes films that are not, they're not fun horror movies. Um, a big example I use is like at the beginning of Scream, when Drew Barrymore is hanging from her, you know, her own intestines in a tree and the camera zooms in on her mother screaming and we get the beautiful Scream title card. That's fun to watch. <laughs> but yeah. in Halloween 2, when Brad Dourif comes home and his daughter has been butchered and her blood is covering the bathroom so heavily that it looks black and he just sinks and Rob Zombie cuts all the sound and cuts to slow motion, but not at slower frame rate. So there's a jarring quality and he just like, that's painful to watch. There's no fun in that. There's no joy in that. There's no excitement. And I think that, I think that that's why he's not quite uh, a horror favorite. You know, he's working on a, in a different way, not a better way or anything, but a different way. See, I'm glad you brought up Halloween too, especially that sequence, because that is probably the best sequence that he's ever directed. Mm. Uh, just performance-wise, editing-wise, shot-wise, like you just feel 
for Brad Dorff's Sheriff Brackett in that moment, the pain, the anguish. It is a very difficult sequence to watch, uh, especially from a character in the first movie where he was very generic and they really turned him into uh, a very heartfelt character in the uh, in the sequel. Uh, I agree. I for, agree. For a great character actor, but that to me is probably the best sequence he's ever he's ever directed and edited. I, I I do think that it's um an incredible scene. I just think it's an incredible film all around. I I actually um almost I I didn't do it. I I flipped a coin, but I almost got a tattoo that just said Halloween 2 2009 cuz that is my favorite <laughs> horror film. Um I I actually wrote an entire book on the film. Um cuz I was amazed to see a, a a horror film that was about violence and the effects of violence on someone's psyche, both violence um, in entertainment and violence that they have either inflicted or that has been uh, inflicted upon them, that that's what the whole film is about and how the film is actually not about good guys and bad guys. It's literally about evil. Evil is a spiritual concept. Hmm. Um, I think that that film is thrilling to watch. And that's the first time where he had all the money he needed and was left alone. Um, because he so asked do for, you, mm-hmm. do you think three from hell is a book worthy movie? No. No, I don't. Okay. Um, but I do think that it is uh, uh, full of wonderful themes. I mean, it's no accident that you've got, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed Sherry Moon zombie wearing a Native American headdress while shooting an arrow through a Mexican wearing a luchador's mask. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, <laughs> he's saying some things here. You know what I mean? Um, but I don't think that it has uh, that kind of cultural significance that Halloween 2 did. Um, and I also feel like this movie, more than the rest of Rob's movies, is kind of about him more than anything. Mm, sure. Yeah. Well, we'll get into uh, a bunch of that, I'm sure, as we're starting to go into some puzzle pieces. But uh, why don't we go with you, Adam, first for your first puzzle piece? Okay. So my first puzzle piece, um, I think the biggest influence of the three movies is obviously a, a movie within the Texas Chainsaw Massacre universe. However, mm. I'm going to say the 2017 Leatherface mm. as a puzzle piece, even though I think in itself was inspired by the Devil's Rejects. But a lot of what happens in Leatherface of you have criminals that were taken from their, their homes. They've been locked away. They escape. They go on the run, uh, you know, create a massacre, like a Southern Fried Massacre road trip. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. which Devil's Rejects and Three from Hell are very much like that. Because um, I believe the easy answer would have probably been Texas Chainsaw 2, but I, I thought might as well throw in a little curve. I, I thought Leatherface was brilliant. I thought that was a brilliant film. I'm a big fan of that whole franchise, um, except for Texas Chainsaw 3D, which, funny enough, I thought stole from Devil's Rejects so heavily. The opening scene is the exact same scene as Devil's Rejects. Yes, it um, is. Yeah, and, and but but yeah, leather that's brilliant. I I agree wholeheartedly. Wow, good one. Yeah, I haven't seen Leatherface, uh, but I knew that the Texas Chainsaw you know series was going to come up at some point in this conversation. I mean, it, it's and and like you said, it is one of those situations where. Uh, and this has been happening a lot lately on the show where we end up looking back at something that in itself was inspired by previous entries in the series. And, you know, that, that cycle continues. I, I, I went to go see that movie. I was the only person in the theater and, um, they forgot to turn the lights down 
when the movie started and i was like i'll wait for like a boring part toward the be- you know like in the first few minutes to like run out there and like 20 minutes and i was like there's not going to be a boring part i need to just bite the bullet and miss 15 seconds um <laughs> that's a great movie I, I i enjoyed it i do enjoy the uh the texas chainsaw movies to a degree i'm not a huge fan of the michael bay ones because they just feel like every other 2000 slasher movie out there Ooh. Um, uh, I, I rewatched the beginning, man. I actually think that the beginning, um, I always joke with my friends that if I ever win uh, an Oscar one day, that I'll use my leverage to remake Texas Chainsaw Massacre the beginning because I with the exact <laughs> same script. Um, that's a brilliant movie. Very thematically driven. We could talk on that later, though. Sorry, I'm talking so much. <laughs> it, you know what? I, I enjoyed it. But again, you know, it's so difficult to do a prequel when you kind of know what the outcome is going to eventually be. Right, sure. Um, and you know what? And I, the one thing I will say about the first remake, uh, the Michael Bay remake, is uh, Daniel Pearl, who was the director of photography of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, did an excellent job on uh, the Michael Bay produced reboot. Pretty much the only good thing I could say about that, in my opinion, the only good thing I could say about it was the cinematography. But well, um, Jonathan uh, Liebsman, who directed the second film, uh, he's like Michael Bay's kind of like a uh, protege, uh, uh, protege rather. He, um, I think he's a very good director, but I don't think that he thinks thematically. And like you said, when you're making a prequel, um, you already know what happens in the plot right so for a prequel to be interesting it has to be thematically driven and that movie really is like it's all about um america creating its own idea of what modern horror is and then instead of actually doing something about it just celebrated it by creating uh serial killer characters i mean there's a lot going on but i don't think that uh liebsman saw that i think he just came at it from a good directing standpoint so i think the directing and the writing are totally in conflict with each other both of equal quality but they don't gel together and that's where the conflict in the movie is and that's why i want to remake it <laughs> which which is correct because when you have a jonathan liebsman who the term i would use would be journeyman like like a rennie mm-hmm. harlan mm-hmm. you know what they put good they put fun stuff up there but they're not really trying to bring out the bigger themes right right yes Yes, I agree. That's why we need people like Rob Zombie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Joe, what do you got for your first one? Oh, because I haven't talked enough. I'm so sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to take it. The first one, I mean, I kind of wanted to go in soft with a little bit. I was going to say Mad Max, um, the first Mad Max, uh, Mm -hmm. um, specifically because I think that that's a movie about a world that is kind of like losing its mind. And, um, like that's why the lawmen, even the lawmen themselves are kind of losing their minds. Like they just have no idea how to contain this widespread, like evil in people's hearts, you know? Mm. And I feel that that's kind of what happens in this movie. Um, that like once, you know, uh, once they get out there, they're just like, wow, like everyone is just so like fucked. You know what I mean? Like everybody is so fucked up. Um, yeah that that like we might as well just go to mexico and then they go to mexico and they're just bored you know what i mean because like there's nothing there's almost nothing special about them anymore it's all too easy for them Mm -hmm. you know there's no innocence left to ruin and are they responsible for ruining that innocence in the first place and i think that that's the same thing for mad max i think that mad max is about people just giving up on the fact that the world has lost its mind much like these characters yeah everything is so crazy it's like what do you even like gauge crazy by anymore exactly no no it's a good one then the film tries to go back to what the root of america is and you've got the native american imagery mixed with the with the uh with them going to mexico and i'm just just saying 
<laughs> <laughs> nice. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, I'm going to uh, go with my first puzzle piece. And I, I should say uh, up front, I only have a couple. You know, I knew you guys were going to bring quite a bit, being big Rob Zombie fans and horror fans. So uh, I only have a couple for this one. But I'll, I'll, I'll work my way into the conversation. <laughs> but uh, my, my first one uh, is, is basically going to be uh, really the trilogy of uh, Robert Rodriguez films, El Mariachi, Desperado, and Once Upon a Time in Mexico. And I guess you could also throw uh, Machete in there as well. But um, And Machete Kills. And yes, Machete and in machete Space kills. whenever it comes out. When it, let's, let's hope it comes out. Oh, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, th- this, like, this movie all kind of just builds towards that, that huge, you know, standoff climax and it's it's absolutely uh it feels like an action sequence that is made by somebody who loves those movies so damn much and wants to like almost set up his own uh his own playground version of that kind of a moment and that kind of a movie and uh and you know it seems like rob zombie is just having so much fun with that that whole idea and that whole setup I I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I I I love that he took it to that direction because I mean, you know, it, it it leads to so much great humor and of course so much great violence. <laughs> <laughs> great violence, oh yep. boy, <laughs> absolutely. I know we're we're not supposed to like violence anymore, but you know, well, there's a diff- <laughs> there's a difference between violence and and like well, I that brings up a whole different question, like what is violence and what is dramatic catharsis? You know, what is entertainment? Sure, you know what I mean. And I think that a lot of films mistake one for the other. And I think one of the beautiful things about Rob Zombie is that he's very good at drawing the line of what he's like in Halloween too. The violence is violence, and it's supposed to be repugnant and scary and awful. And sure. in this, this is catharsis. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It is very yeah. different. Absolutely. No, I get that completely. Um, well, Adam, what do you got next? You know what? I'll, I'm going to skip ahead. I'm going to ride on your coattails a little bit since you already brought up Robert Rodriguez. And mm-hmm. since we're on the subject of violence and entertainment, these movies are essentially just they're, they're grindhouse movies. They're exploitation movies. They're, they're, they're popcorn movies to have a good time. You know mm-hmm. what? You're there to to root for the antihero. You know what? Have a good time, see some violence, and you know, call it a night. So I, the Grindhouse movies, sure. uh, Robert Rodriguez and uh, Quentin Tarantino's Grindhouse movies, because this movie wants to be a Grindhouse film. It wants to go back to the '70s. It wants you to find the dirtiest, most rat-infested, piss-smelling theater that you could find with blown-out speakers and graffiti on the wall. Sit there have some popcorn and have a great time. Absolutely. And of course, Rob Zombie was part of that whole thing. Oh yes. That's the film I want to see more than either the two films we got or any of the other trailers. I mean, <laughs> listen, we, I think we all agree that Nick Cage is amazing and who doesn't want no. to see him as Fu Manchu for 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, you've got my money already. So I, I just hope he grows 100%. out that mustache and not gets a glue on. Oh, he's, he I just want to. I just want to see him grow that out, and then you know maybe he'll do another crazy film, and you know they'll just try to CGI his mustache out. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and and to your puzzle piece though, I I absolutely agree. I mean, th- th- you know, that's kind of I think Rob Zombie's you know his aesthetic really just completely 
uh, fits into that whole thing. He's been doing it for a long time, and I think even back to his music and everything, I mean, it's always been fitting into that whole mold. And all of his movies really do fall into one or another type of 70s exploitation films. Lords sure. of Salem is definitely, you know, very Rosemary's Baby and the Omen type of, uh, uh, you know, spiritual fright, fright fest. Uh, and, mm. you know, a lot of the other things are other ty- a type of exploitation films that well, I'll get to later on my list. So I don't want to spoil it. But there's a whole series of these type of movies that I didn't realize that there was actually a name for. And until uh, doing hmm. the research for this. Interesting. Good Interesting. tease for later. Yeah, <laughs> I've always thought of 31 as being his only movie that didn't feel 70s influence, even though it's set in the 70s. That feels much more like an 80s film to me. Um, that one also just feels more like an action movie to me in general, like a, a fight for survival kind of movie. See, that's the, probably the one movie that he made that I, I just don't like on any level because it just seems like he is cannibalizing his own movies to make another movie. Oh, see, I, you know, the first time I saw that movie, this is a true story. I uh, Somebody asked me to be in one of their films, and I went to go do my scene the day bef- uh, the day that that played in theaters. And I was like, I have to leave right from set to go to this movie. And in the scene, I got stabbed with the screwdriver, and the guy accidentally really stabbed me. And um, I didn't have time to go to the doctor beforehand, so I literally just, like, like taped a paper towel on my back. And... Um, and went to the movie and then there were no seats left except in the front row. So I had to stand off to the side and I watched the whole thing, um, standing up off to the side. Uh, and I guess I was distracted and I was like, I don't know. It was kind of cool, but it was nothing. It was like a nothing movie. There was no, it just, you know, happened. But then the next day, you know, I started thinking about all of it and of all his thematically driven movies, that's the most incredible i mean it's about at the time it's about everything that's going on this idea of like aristocrats like playing games with us and like pitting us against each other when all we want to do is eat and fuck but instead they're making us eat each other and fuck each other over and then by the time they're done playing their games with us we're so fed up and so driven crazy we'd rather fight each other than fight them and take them uh, brilliant <laughs> you know what Joe I finds I... the themes in these movies man <laughs> <laughs> he found way more in that movie than I thought that I found. But Joe, I'm gonna. I, I have to applaud your dedication. I I can't imagine that the first thing I want to do uh, after getting stabbed with the screwdriver is to go to the movies and to sit and actually think about all the themes. It was only playing one night. Like I, you know, I didn't. I couldn't. I'm not gonna miss it. You know, like I don't know. It, yeah, I mean, it was. I was gonna say it wasn't that bad of a stab, but no, it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, are, if you, are you going to get shot and be like, ah, you know what? I can't miss the Joker. It's going to be the last night in the theaters. Uh, no, that's okay. <laughs> I, I I regret sitting down for five minutes of the Joker. That's a no, That's a different story. That's um, another story altogether. Yeah, I worked with E.G. Daly right after she did Thirty One. We we made a film together. Um, she was in Thirty One. She played Sex Head, and uh, I just I spent the whole day on set with her between takes, just making her tell me stories about working with Rob Zombie. <laughs> and she's nice. like, you know, I've worked with like Tim Burton. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me about Rob. See, I, I remember E.G. Daly from doing a lot of voiceover work. Uh, Baby Blues was was one of the cartoons that I enjoyed on a, on a Delta one. So I know her, you know, mostly from her, her voice work. Yeah, she's, she's one of the most incredible people I know. She's been in a couple of my films and she might be the love of my life. We'll see. <laughs> well, uh, what do you got next, Joe? Next one I had was Easy Rider. Mm. Um, and the reason I mentioned Easy Rider, because I feel like, 
you know, yes, The Devil's Rejects was more of like a murderous kind of road movie. This one, though, this one had that, um, I mean, this is an overused phrase these days, but that hangout kind of quality. Um, the, like, I didn't feel any tension watching this movie. I literally felt like these were they were just doing their thing, like trying to get sure. back into the world, looking for what their version of America is, you know. Um, and uh, I also felt like, the way it was structured, how like we were just kind of introduced to all these eccentric characters who kind of like come and go on the journey. You know what I mean? Like, and I felt the performances were very flamboyant, like easy rider, like Richard Edson. Um, he's so brilliant in this movie. Um, he, uh, he's, you know, of course from like do the right thing and stuff like that, but we've never seen him play a character like this, like this, you know, Mexican pimp kind of, I don't know like what he was supposed to be, but he reminded me of Jack Nicholson a lot in the movie, how mm. they're like, an instigator they're like the person who seems like they're on your side but really they take things too far and like ruin everything you know much like jack nicholson mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah i guess easy rider would be my next one yeah no absolutely i i can see that and uh yeah I, like you said i mean it is kind of a uh like a hangout type of a movie i mean it's like all these all these people haven't seen each other in forever we haven't seen them forever and we we get to uh we get to see them hanging out mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Devil's Rejects is like, like I, I don't think you're quote unquote supposed to root for them necessarily in the Devil's Rejects because sure. they're pretty evil, like mm. very openly evil. And then at the end, they kind of flip that on you with the, mm. the, the end sequence. I think that that's why that end sequence is so powerful. Right. Well, um, I mean, right. I always thought it was a little closer to last the original Last House on the left, where it's you have these evil beings and then you have these people that are going after them and you're trying to decide, well, who is really more evil? The ones that inflicted uh, on the persons that is known to them or the vigilante justice uh, done against them. Be you know, because when you think about mm -hmm. uh, Sheriff Wydell, you know, trying to torture these people, you actually feel bad for the devil's rejects. You're actually almost rooting for the antiheroes to get out, even though they are such evil people, but you're almost questioning, well, who's more evil? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, I mean, I can see where that was the idea. I guess it's just me where I was like, I didn't feel bad for them, nor did I feel anything for Wydell. Like, I, I was just like, I mean, that makes sense. That seems like what would happen. You know what I mean? Like, I, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a movie that's going to read differently depending on how you know you personally are going to connect with these people. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, I hope I don't make it seem like I don't like The Devil's Rejects. Um, mm. yeah, I mean, of course I do. It's a it's a good movie, but I just I don't think it has the same strength that all of his other work does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to go with my uh, next puzzle piece, uh, and I am going to talk about. Not Rob Zombie's Halloween, but the uh, Danny McBride, Jody Hill Halloween from last year. Um, and the womp, reason womp, why... Womp. And he gave yeah. Gordon Green. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Take that back. Well, <laughs> those three men are brilliant, so it's... I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the David Gordon Green uh, 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 Halloween. Halloween but, H4O. Um, <laughs> yes, that one. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's a good. good. Uh, that's a I good mean, title. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, this movie's uh, so powerful; <laughs> it just ripped off the seventh Halloween movie. Yeah, much to a damn tee. <laughs> well, the reason I wanted to bring it up is uh, because I felt, in a lot of ways, um, this three from hell. I felt in a lot of ways that Halloween felt almost like a glorified fan film. In that it was like going back, taking these characters and just like, you know, as a fan doing what you want with them. 
And I feel in a way Rob Zombie is just like pulling these characters back out of, you know, they've been gone for all these years. And it's like, is, is this really where it would have went, you know, but it's like, well, I think this is what I want to see them do. And I think this is what, you know, a lot of my fans want to see them do not narratively, but just like for the fuck of it for fun. <laughs> and that's kind of what I what I was uh, what I was picturing during the movie and why I brought up Halloween. You know what? If it wasn't for that movie, I would have no clue what a bond me sandwich is. <laughs> that, thank, thank you, David Gordon Green, for explaining that to me in the middle of a Halloween movie. It's yeah, I, just I, what I needed to know. I saw that Halloween movie months and months and months before it came out. And it had a different ending where like Jamie Lee Curtis got shot with a crossbow and like died in the back of a pickup truck. It was very strange. Um, mm. I thought that that movie was an embarrassment. I, I just, for I a minute, hate it. yeah, I thought it was crap. And it's so funny because I love David Gordon Green and Danny McBride and Jody Hill so much. Yeah. Um, I actually just made a shirt the other day that said, God bless the righteous gemstones. Um, Hell yeah. But um, <laughs> I'll, I'll order one. That oh, It's all yours. <laughs> the, but that movie, like, to me, felt like a paycheck movie. Like every one of them, it, it, they needed a hit so that they could keep doing the kind of things that they wanted to do. Mm. And that's what that movie felt like to me. That movie was so lazy and so dumb. Like, and you mentioned Halloween H40, Halloween H20. I've seen all the Halloween movies. I've only finished uh, three of them because I think they're, <laughs> I, I'm just not into them. But I loved Halloween H20 and I loved the flip in the switch with, with Lori going on the hunt at the end. I thought it was awesome. Like, Which was completely missing from H40. Right. Well, in this one, she's totally. been training for 40 years for this and she like has her house all prepped out. And you're going to sit there and tell me that she doesn't have a button in her panic room, that she doesn't have cameras in each room so she can see what room he's in. And then if she has a stupid trap door, she can't operate that from the fucking panic room. Like, Get out of here. That movie's so dumb. <laughs> I, I, I've I've argued about this movie. I don't it's to me it's not the worst one. It's not unwatchable, and there are things about it I do like. I love the score. I think the f- cinematography is also really nice. I like they did make Michael actually very creepy at times, and I did enjoy that. But man, some of the dialogue bits. I mean, you have the the androgynous boy talking with his father about not wanting to go hunting anymore because he wants to do dance class. What what is the point of 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 making a uh, a progressive joke in the middle of this movie? And, well, there's and there's also, a lot of weird moments. And like then you that. also introduce these characters that serve no purpose, and mm-hmm. they're either dropped or they're dispatched of immediately. Like uh, like Will Patton. Like, what? Why do you hire Will Patton for this? Well, you know what, David? Though by making this a puzzle piece, it brings up an interesting thing. When good uh, filmmakers kind of take it easy or like what is taking it easy versus being lazy right Mm -hmm. so like you've got david gordon green who is a proven really great filmmaker and danny mcbride is a great writer and they made this movie and it's just kind of lazy but they're good at what they do so naturally there is good there's quality to the movie which is why we get so confused um and i think that like honestly to talk about the joker for a half second i actually felt that way about joaquin phoenix in the joker where i actually don't think his performance is all that like amazing he's just a great actor it kind of felt like a great actor phoning in a performance it didn't feel ever connected to me but because Mm. it's joaquin phoenix it's going to be a good performance right right so but then you've got three from hell which i do think this is rob kind of like it on in easy mode just on easy street just kind of doing his thing but but it's good. It's the difference between easy versus lazy. 
you know you know that that reminds me um when i saw it i i'm assuming when you guys saw it they also showed the uh like the little interview with rob zombie before it and yeah. and no, he, no, he tells I, a story I didn't, I didn't they didn't that. show it for you no so I yeah he tells a story of how uh it came about and the story in a nutshell is we went to a hotel room we wrote a script and then we filmed it and yeah. my, my friend Josh turns to me and goes, what a fascinating story. Like, <laughs> like and I, I really feel like it's just like, it's just a movie. Like, like, it's just, they want to just get together and have fun. Like, you know, yeah. there's not that much to it. I hope that the next Halloween sequels are like Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. You've already told the stuff that needs to be told or retold. Now go off and do your own thing. I'm glad that mm. we've recorded that so that somebody else uh, said it other than me and we have evidence of it because, yes, I agree. <laughs> I, I actually do like Halloween 2 a lot just for the chances that it takes right. and it, because it's very different mm -hmm. versus the first Halloween Rob Zombie Halloween movie I just call fun trash. Well, it's entertaining to watch, but I don't really think about it. Well, he got the job based on a pitch that he wanted to make the film entirely a prequel that ended with Michael Myers killing his family, which was the beginning of the first one. And then like less than a month out of production, they said, nope, like and switched mm -hmm. it on him and gave him that as act one. So he did what he could with it, I suppose. But um, but Halloween two again, he said, leave me alone. And I think but, it was it was so radical that like people really rejected it when it came out. But it, it's actually become a thing in the last couple of years where that film has been reevaluated and people are actually much more open to it. These it days. does feel well, you have way, to watch yeah. the the longer version because there's a lot more character to it and it makes a lot more sense. The, and, the second one, right? Yeah, the second one. And and you say that they left him alone. If you actually listen to the commentary of Halloween two, they did not leave him alone. They busted his chops just as much as they did the first time. Right. But that that's why he got his director's cut. And when I, I guess I should clarify that that's what I mean. When I speak of Halloween two, I speak of the director's cut yeah, okay. like that, that, that he got to like make the version he wanted. He didn't want to fight that battle the second time, but when it came to scripting it and casting it and making his cut, he, he got like kind of total freedom on it. Um, uh, and and it shows. I mean, I will never forget being in the theater, seeing Halloween two, and at the end when the helicopters are flying around and like, uh, and Loomis is like going into the shed. He's like, Sheriff, I owe you this. The film fucked up, and suddenly the top of the image was on the bottom, and the bottom was on the top. It wasn't upside down. It was like fucked up, and the rest of the movie played like that, and none of us got up. We were so <laughs> in it that nobody got out of their seats. And after it was over, we left the theater and they were handing out readmit tickets. And me and my girlfriend, they handed us readmit tickets. And I looked at her and I gave her this look and she knew what it meant. And we turned right back around and watched it again. Hell uh, yeah. That's a good girl. That's a keeper. Oh, yeah. We broke up a long time ago. <laughs> sorry about that. That's all right. she, Sorry. She was a keeper. <laughs> and then and then she and then after that movie she was like i'm never seeing another rob zombie movie again you're like get out oh really <laughs> it's like you were there <laughs> that's good well uh what do you got next adam Ooh, okay uh natural born killers mm -hmm. just for the sensationalizing on a manson le manson like level as they did in the mm -hmm. beginning of the movie and about halfway through of natural born killers that they sensationalize the killer. They, they sure. show there's a fan base out there very similar to, uh, you know, after the Manson family murders and during the Manson trial, that it was a whole big, uh, new circus. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I felt that that 
fit in right there that you know what you're taking a page out of that you're probably really taking a page from the manson family uh trials but you know that was also replicated in natural born killers so i thought of that especially within the first 15 20 minutes of the movie yeah that that absolutely makes sense and yeah i would say you know, especially uh, with with Rob Zombie's equal, you know, infatuation with you know all things real life, you know, murder. He probably was just as much the real Manson as much as the uh, you know the fictionalized version. As well as there's a lot of you know experimental editing things. You know, very grainy shots, the lighting. Uh, you know, very similar to some of what Oliver Stone was trying to do uh, in Natural Born Killers as well. Absolutely. I I really um really hate Natural Born Killers. And I I to me that is that might be my least favorite movie of all time. And it's not that it's a bad movie, of course not. It's a very well-made movie. But I do think that that film does glorify evil. And I think that I was actually just talking about this with somebody before we recorded this podcast how Natural Born Killers if anything like the new Joker film makes a case to validate your anger and your resentments at the very least, if not your violent tendencies by by rewarding uh, Mallory and Mickey at the end, uh, they literally become famous and have a family and travel the country in celebration. And um, I find that to be very troubling. And and why I think that uh, this film differs is because, first of all, the lawman in the film, uh, Jeff Daniel Phillips, who does not get enough credit as an actor, I think he's an incredible actor, um, while they do paint him as a hypocrite, they do paint him as a bit debaucherous. When it gets down to the wire, he's a human. And that becomes more and more evident as the film goes on. Um, and he's the one who kills his own wife on accident. You know, he accidentally shoots his own wife, right? Mm-hmm. In Natural Born Killers, Tommy Lee Jones is literally a snarling, evil, sinister, whatever. That pr- My problem with films like Joker, with films like Natural Born Killers, is that everybody surrounding them is an asshole. Like, they're not hypocrites, they're not whatever, they're assholes, they're evil. They're just as evil as the main characters, if not more so. And Rob Zombie, I think, really did a good job of not doing that. And as far as making them cool, the Devil's Rejects in this film, they're never cool until their showdown with the cartel, with the, you know what I mean, with the bad guys at the end. That's when the movie gets cool, when it's literally true evil versus true evil. You know what I mean? That's when they're playing their games. That's when that's the only time we're meant to quote unquote root for them, but never in the context of the real world. Um, and I think that's very important. I think it's a very important distinction. I, I think mean, real world is a good, interesting word to use there. Um, phrase, but you know, because it is, it's so it's, it's almost like, like cartoonishly bad, violent, you know, mm-hmm. evil. Yeah. I mean, natural born killers is an okay movie. I don't particularly love it, but it is an interesting examination on uh, pretty much the media-driven circus of true crime America. You know, essentially, mm-hmm. how do we view, you know, from from the eyes, we're watching all this stuff on the media and how it's sensationalized and how it makes us think. And that's essentially what Natural Born Killers is. It's trying to paint this picture through various different various different medias. Right. But I think that I, Tanya is another film that does the same thing, but I think that both those films commit the same sin, which is by sensationalizing these characters and exploiting it for entertainment's sake, they are the problem that they claim. Like they claim this is a problem, but they are part of that problem by creating iconic heroes who succeed in the end. Um, Hmm. 
you know, unlike Scarface where he, you know, gets killed or unlike Badlands where he gets arrested and, you know, these guys literally end in victory. So guess what? Every teenager watching the movie gets to talk about the badass soundtrack and they get their Ian Mallory patch on their shirt, you know? Um, <laughs> and there's nothing in the film that you can point to to say, yeah, but they're saying this is bad. You know what I mean? Like they're saying that mm-hmm. this is not the way to live. Um, hmm. I think it also, I think it also doesn't help that there was an original ending where Mickey and Mallory were killed, uh, mm-hmm. which may have may have helped the cathar- catharsis to it. The fact that they did get their comeuppance at the end instead of them just kind of, you know, riding off into the sunset. Right. I felt the same way about Joker. He literally dances off into the sunset. Uh, so. <laughs> no, it's, it's no, kind of a perfect no. ending. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so what do you got my next, fingers Joe? my ears. I should went la, 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 la. Oh. <laughs> oh, you haven't seen it yet? No, I have. Oh, seen. well, lead with that, my friend. Uh, sorry, Adam. Sorry, sorry, it, it's, sorry. A, it's an origin story. I mean, come on. Yeah, you already know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, it, you know, but I'm sure there's always going to be, you know, if it's ambiguous or not ambiguous, and please don't spoil the question. Or spoil, sure. you know, what it is, you know, but I'm interested to see how it unfolds. I'm more than Absolutely. happy to not talk about Joker. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I, before you got on the call, I saw Rambo. I gave Dave my few minutes speech on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I was on that night when I wrote that review. I, I assume you saw that review that I wrote on Rambo. Um, somebody, it was way more, way more entertaining than the movie. I thought, well, somebody, it accused, probably was. somebody <laughs> accused me of like, I call out Nicholas, uh, what's his name? Craig Zoller's films rather all the time for being racist and pro Trump. And one of my friends, he's like, you dare call Zoller pro Trump, but you support that pro Trump piece of shit movie. And I was like, I could explain. And he's like, by all means. And so I just started <laughs> typing and then I just got into it, you know, and two hours later I had a 10 page analysis. <laughs> you should be on a podcast, man. Was oh. that my 10 page analysis or was I agreeing with you? <laughs> i actually don't think uh, craig zellner's films are pro-trump but that's that's my personal opinion yeah i mean we could get into that for another podcast too but uh i'd rather just never watch a craig zoller movie again i think that's the where i'm leaning at this point i like special it. episode coming soon oh lord let's not invite <laughs> chad on that one <laughs> so you got Wait, what, uh, one Snyder more cut? right joe <laughs> that was good <laughs> yeah i have one more i have one more puzzle piece and this is uh, this one's loony, but it makes sense to me. Um, Love Streams, the uh, Cassavetes film, uh, John Cassavetes yeah. film. Uh, I've never heard of it. I mean, I've never seen it. I've heard of it. Never heard of it. Yeah. Never seen it though. I mean, I feel like I draw a lot of films. I, I, I relate a lot of films to Cassavetes' work, but I, I feel it's important. Um, mm-hmm. This film... I, I talked about earlier in the podcast here how I felt like this movie was more about Rob Zombie thinking about himself. And the characters themselves start to question their relevance, uh, their relevance, like if they even should, quote unquote, keep going, what mm. good would it do? Also asking themselves, was it worth it for us to escape from this prison life that we were in? And then to be questioning the the lengths that they go to, like Baby her, herself, like getting to be more and more involved in her own head, like going crazier, like Otis is afraid of that. You know, um, I felt like this film was Rob Zombie asking all these questions. I mean, he's getting older. He's 50 now. 
you know, he's 53 or 54, right? You know, so he's getting older. He's starting to question, does he still have, much like Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this idea, do I still have what it takes? Am I still relevant? Have I gone too far in a direction to be um, accessible and and have impact? Mm-hmm. Um, and he explores that through this through these characters, much like Cassavetti's love streams, which Cassavetti's made when he was dying. Um, he found out he was dying, so he made the film, and it was a film where he was not only questioning that about himself, but questioning the sanity of his characters and if they had helped people to have a better understanding of themselves. Because before he died, he wanted to know that he had helped people feel better and more open and learn to love each other um, in even in painful ways. He wanted to be sure that that's what he was leaving behind. And I mm. think that Rob Zombie getting older is questioning those things in this movie. Um, uh, brilliantly so. Like, not enough to be didactic or to bog down the journey or the fun, whatever word you want to use, but I felt that those themes were very evident in this movie. I forget, did you bring up that movie in our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood episode? Um, I brought up a Cassavetti's film. I don't believe okay, it was that not one. that one. I believe it was okay. Opening Night. I can't remember. I've brought up Opening Night before too, for sure. Sure, sure. Right on. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean those themes definitely. I I can see where you're where you're coming from, even though I haven't seen that movie. Um, but I do think that that's some of the most interesting stuff in this movie. Uh, even though I didn't, uh, you know, like it as much as you guys seem to have. Uh, but I. I like that stuff about about the characters, like really not sure, you know, what they even want to do with their newfound uh, freedom, you know, after finally getting out after all these years. They're like, like, is this what we really even want anymore? You know, and it's such it's such a kind of a a funny, but also kind of a, I guess poignant uh, look, at, especially with such such weird characters to do it with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and for them, like the media, like catching, like the media is still sensationalizing them and they're so bored. They're like, this, this is yeah. just our lives. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, and I got to assume that for an artist, especially one like Rob Zombie, like by the time he got famous, you got to remember there's already 30 years worth of him being who he is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just when we're all discovering him, he's already been this for half a century, sure. you know? And so like that, I mean, it's such a weird spot to be in. Yeah. You know, no, absolutely. Uh, well, Adam, what do you got next? You know what? I, I'm I'm going to do one, and then I'm just going to throw in a quick one of the certain uh, subgenre of exploitation that sure. would fall under. Um, Michael Henke's Funny Games, hmm. if you've ever seen it, which is essentially about two sure. you know well dressed preppies uh, that uh, pretty much uh, break themselves into a family's home and just enjoys this uh, sadistic games and torture. Uh, just mm-hmm. t- take a lot of glee from it. And that's essentially what these characters do. They just didn't, uh, you know, three from hell or the devil's rejects. They just, they enjoy the sadism and the torture of their victims. They, you know, they, re- they almost get off on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the big connection that I had with that is that it's essentially a movie of these people just enjoying the torture uh, and pain and misery of others. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that is another, uh, it's almost like its own subgenre. I mean, like the invasion, the home invasion movie. Mm-hmm. Correct. But do you think that this movie, more than the others, especially, like, are they finding joy out of it anymore? I think that that's a big question in the movie. I think that, like, do they enjoy it? And this is also when you think about it, the first time where the people that they 
uh, inflict harm on are people who have already inflicted harm on them. Um, wait, wait. What did Mr. Baggy Britches do to anybody? You're talking about Clint Howard. Yes. Well, obviously, he reminds him of his uh, the the of Captain Spaulding. Yeah, you know but what I mean. Spaulding was funny and made him laugh. You know, and eventually, you know, Baggy, Baggy Bridges had to pee himself. I more so mean like the torture aspect, like when he's like when they're torturing like the um, the hunters, if you will, and uh, uh, or who are hunting them or when they're torturing like when they've got uh, the warden and his family and his, his wife and friends like and torturing the clown is for their sake. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I, I think that like I think that there's more there's more of a um, they actually have like uh a purpose in this for their, for their evil. They're, they're, they're angry this time. They're not just attacking innocence. Uh, you know what I mean? In their eyes, if you will. True. But mm. they do go through great lengths to, to kill and torture these people. Whereas they have the hunters, you know, you don't, you could just kill that person and, and go on your merry way. You don't have to spend the time skinning off their face. I agree. I agree. So he had to have done it for enjoyment. And even the warden's wife, where they don't, make it as apparent in the devil's rejects that rape had occurred, but you kind of assume that rape had occurred because she's there bruised and naked. You know, he obviously did that for a reason you know, for, for enjoyment in, in devil's rejects. No, in a three, well, in three from hell, you have the warden's wife to Otis that's naked. So, you know, it's, it's more there, you know, they're trying to allude to it Absolutely. Uh, versus the devil's rejects where he forcibly, you know, uh, has her uh, blow him and then lick the gun uh, for, se- you know, for sexual gratification. Right. But again, in, in Devil's Rejects, these are complete unknowns. These are, in their eyes, just, you know, randoms. But in this movie, they actually have some kind of weird, sick, like, perspective that, like, these people, you know, th- like, while they may be enjoying it, they're targeted. These people are targeted for the wrongs that have been done to them. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike the other two films. Well, uh, then what about the Mexican cartel at the end is when you have Otis beating the one guy's head in with the gun, you know, Richard Brake is just sitting there smiling and enjoying it. Right. I'm I'm not saying they don't enjoy it, but oh. again, the Mexican cartel, <laughs> they were there to kill them. You know what I mean? They were betrayed. They were double crossed. So like, yeah, like I, I, uh, that's interesting though. Until you brought it up, though, I never thought about that. I never thought about the fact that these, all these people that they're against in this movie, are people who have done some kind of wrong by them at first in their eyes. That's interesting. Yeah, um, and then quickly, while I was looking up for films on this, I stumbled across, you know, because I was looking at. I remember reading a review of The Devil's Rejects, referring to it as a Southern Fried Road movie, which it mm. is. Um, so I found a type of subgenre which perfectly fits called Hicksploitation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the definition, a regional branch of exploitation cinema populated with hillbilly and good old boy stereotypes. I think that pretty much fits at least uh, Devil's Rejects and Three from Hell into that type of Hicksploitation, whether it be a Smokey and the Bandit, uh, 2000 Maniacs, uh, even... Um, you know, the original Walking Tall. Make you know, it county it, line. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, just kind of that good old boy Southern. You know, they're they're all essentially white trash. Right. Yeah. So well, I think it kind of falls into that type of uh, genre, which you don't really see anymore. 
I, I agree. And yeah, yeah, being Texas based, these movies, I mean, it's kind of ripe with that, I suppose. His white trash aesthetic has kind of washed over all of his films, whether they're set sure. in like an urban city or like small suburbia. But I guess that here is where it's most appropriate for sure, especially in Devil's Rejects. Devil's Rejects, I think, 100% falls into that category for sure. Yeah, uh, and his, mu- his music has a lot of that aesthetic as well. Everything revolving around his you know, artwork and videos and all that kind of stuff. But I think it even carries over into his other movies. And I believe that we were all talking about, uh, last time we tried to record this, uh, Richard Breck in Halloween 2, where he just repeats the word fuck 50 times in various different tones. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, that's just trying to be as white trash as you can get. I mean, I see, I, I, I think that that is one of the most like honest and realistic moments in a movie ever. Like with his face completely crushed in, pinned by that car, because he's in a car accident in the film. If people don't know, he, they hit a cow in their, tr- in their, uh, meat wagon and, and he's Richard, he's pinned and, um, and his face is cut up by glass and he's just, he's in so much pain and he's trying to say any word at first and he can't get any word out except for fuck. Um, <laughs> and then he just keeps repeating it because he's manic. Did you guys know that actually the uh, F and U together, the sound that it makes, buh, releases a, a kind of endorphin and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and it's a muscle relaxer unlike any other uh, sound that we can make which that makes is a why, lot of sense yeah which is why fuck is such a used word or even the word fun it's the only sound that releases those feelings um and that's why we like to use it so much just a little tidbit i happen to like the word fuck more than fun but I mean, but you know if you put them together fucking fun. fun fun fucking you know that's yeah, actually, yeah. I'm, I feel pretty good right now. Listen to those endorphins <laughs> fly. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do the finished puzzle here, and then we'll get into any uh, closing thoughts about the movie. Um, so we talked about, in this conversation about Three from Hell, uh, we talked about Leatherface and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, uh, Mad Max, El Mariachi, Desperado, Once Upon a Time in uh, Mexico, Machete, Robert Rodriguez movies in general, really. Uh, Grindhouse, uh, Easy Rider, Halloween, Natural Born Killers, Love Streams, Funny Games, and Hicksploitation movies. Um, yeah. <laughs> Lo- Love Streams I, I really- just sticks out like such a sword. <laughs> I know, right? I love it. I love it. It would have been funny if it was like, yep, love story. I've been like, with, with, really? <laughs> How'd you get that one in there? I really recommend, David. I think you just need to check out some Cassavetti's films, man. I, I think at least I'll make a lot more sense to you at that point. You're like, ah. Oh, I yeah. think I do. I think I do. I think I need to do a uh, a little a little side uh, a little side series for the uh, the Patreon where I where I catch up on some of these damn movies that I haven't seen. Or you could but, go uh, just watch more movies of the younger Cassavetti's and just rewatch Face Off a few times. Oh, there Nick. Yeah. Oh, he's the best. He's such yep. a good dude. I love the notebook. <laughs> That's true. It's true. I do. I love it. Uh, Jenna uh, Rollins. I mean, that was my introduction to her as an actress. Um, she was Cassavetti's, is Cassavetti's wife, if you will. Uh, she was his star most of the time. Um, it's a great introduction to the work of Cassavetti's. Uh, I, I love Jenna Rowland. I love James Gardner. I, I can't get behind that movie. You know, I actually had the honor of uh, filming General Rollins. I directed her in her final on-screen performance. Um, she saw a film that I made. I gave it to her because it's such a big uh, Cassavetes fan. And um, she and her assistant, they hired me to direct a short film that was 
that is her last film. And we got to film it at the Cassavetti's household where he shot most of his films. One of the greatest honors of my life. Wow. Yeah. Pretty impressive. Freaking, that's freaking cool. I mean, it was fun. I'll send you the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Any closing thoughts on uh, Three from Hell, you guys? Um, well, when we tried to record this and it and the movie had just come out, um, you know, I guess we all had certain things on our mind in regards to why people weren't in the movie as much. And a few days later, unfortunately, sure. Sig Haig died. Um, mm. you know, we're all kind of bummed about it. And uh, this apparently is his last movie. So, you know, rest in peace, brother. Fuck your mama. Fuck your <laughs> sister. Fuck your grandma. And last of all, fuck you. Perfect. Perfect. That is absolutely a great uh, closing thought. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I really like that, like, you know, this conversation has brought up certain, like, themes that I, you know, that I hadn't even started to explore yet. You know, like, like we just mentioned the the idea that these characters are the first time that they've inflicted violence on characters who they felt had wronged them. Uh, just different ideas. And kind of what you did, David, when you were talking about, you know, Halloween and how that related to like filmmakers taking it easy and filmmakers being lazy. That's an interesting sure. thought too. Um, so I'm very appreciative of this conversation. I, I actually, it, it's more, even more to chew on when I go back and see it for a fourth time. Yay. Yeah. Which was the last thing I was going to bring up is just the fact that, like I said at the beginning, uh, you know, this, this episode is going up the day that this is, uh, having an encore, uh, uh, fathom event screening. Uh, that's pretty rare. That a movie gets, you know, put out in theaters for only, you know, one or two nights and then actually does so well that they put it out for another one. It only made, uh, it made $2 million in those three nights. Two million. Yeah. On a $3 yeah. million dollar budget. Oh, God yeah. bless him. I remember when I saw <laughs> It Follows for the first time, I was just like, man, that movie was terrible, but good for them for like breaking through with this little, like, what was that budget? $100,000? And then I find out Probably. that it was a $3 million movie and I was like, what? What? That costs $3 million? Rob Zombie's Lords of Salem costs a third of that and is the most beautiful, big, epic-looking... You know, this man can do so much with so little, and it's because he cares about his movies, and he, he's, he's, his focus is in the right place, if you ask me. I liked it, Follows. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying, but from the music video background, he you know, has the ability to shoot on a small budget, uh, on a shortened schedule. He's used to, to doing that just from his music video, uh, background, mm -hmm. or at least I seem to think so. And well, then, you know, and you don't want to talk about Joker. I don't want to talk about it follows. Yeah. good. Mm -hmm. that, uh, I, I'm very good with both that. Yeah. Let's not talk about <laughs> either of those movies. No, it follows is exactly like the, uh, the allegory it was. It's, it's a painful STD that follows you everywhere. Yeah, but it has absolutely nothing to do with like, you know, sexual exploration of teenagers coming to your own sex. I mean, like the movie is about STDs and has nothing to do with sex. It has nothing to say. What? How stupid to take such a great premise and say nothing with it. To hell with you. <laughs> I, I agree. Go watch Ginger Snaps and Set, movie that has a lot more to say. Yes. Oh, yeah. Ginger Snaps. That's great good, movie. That's a good trilogy. Well, Joe, do you got anything you want to plug? Uh, no, but I do have some exciting things that are on the cusp that hopefully next time uh, I'm on here, I can I can share with everybody. Um, very exciting. So, Beautiful. Yeah, just wish me well for now. Yes, good luck with all of those things. How about you, Adam? Anything you want to plug? Uh, nothing to plug, but uh, support your local video store. Oh, wait, no, we don't do that anymore. Uh, if you've go, got one, do it. Yeah, though. if you got one, go to Alaska. Yeah. 
I'm one of the hosts of the Secret Transmission Podcast. We do a satire show all about conspiracies, UFOs, the paranormal, cryptozoology, true crime, and much more. Our show was transmitted to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and many other podcast apps. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Secret Transpod. We hope you come listen to us try to explain the unexplainable. All right, I hope you enjoyed that conversation about Three From Hell with Joe Black and Adam Wells. Uh, really fun time talking to those guys. And uh, fun movie. I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not the biggest fan of the uh, Rob Zombie thing, but I definitely enjoyed this one. I think it might have been my favorite of his movies, uh, the more I think about it. But, you know, I still didn't love it or anything. But definitely go see it. It is out tonight if you're hearing this. Of course, we got into spoilers on the episode, as we always do. But, you know, that doesn't mean you shouldn't go see it. Go see the movie. It's out tonight. Fathom Events. Check it out. And, of course, it'll be on VOD later this week, I believe. So uh, that does it for today. Uh, I want to remind you, as always, to make sure you are subscribed to Piecing It Together on your podcast app of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. Support our Patreon at patreon.com slash PiecingPod. And, uh, I don't know, buy t-shirts at TeePublic. Search for PiecingPod. I don't know. There's a whole bunch of stuff you could do. Go do it. Best of all, just share the show and let us know how you're enjoying it. We, we'd love to hear from you. So, uh, yeah, that, that's it for today. But we have a lot of Piecing It Together coming up real soon here. Um, the episodes may be a little bit sporadic over the next week or two. I got some stuff I'm dealing with at home. But uh, we'll get into that another day. Uh, but just know that we have like five episodes in the can right now. And they are coming. And uh, we got a whole lot of other movies to cover, too. So... We got plenty more piecing it together coming your way in the next couple of weeks here. And let's leave you guys with a piece of music as we always do. And of course, I want to try to find something that would feel at home in a movie like Three from Hell or really any Rob Zombie movie. And I'm going to go with the track that I know I've played before on the show, but it definitely would fit. And that is Burnout from my album Head Like Fire. Enjoy this track and we'll be back with more piecing it together coming up later this week.
and All Points West. 